So today we get to start back in the Gospel of John, and uh, when we ended uh, in November before Advent series, we had just finished the first half of John's Gospel, which is uh, called the Book of Signs, where John presents Jesus in his ministry uh, throughout Galilee and also throughout Jerusalem, and when we get to the end of chapter 12, that's the end of Jesus' public ministry, and when we get to chapter 13... uh, it starts the second book of John's gospel, which is called the book of glory. It's called the book of glory because in John's gospel, John considers the death and resurrection and ascension into heaven as the, as the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so imagine, imagine everybody, try to imagine what you're going to be doing tomorrow about five o'clock. You might be able to figure that out. Some of you might be going to school. Some of you might be going to work, but you have a pretty good idea what's going, to be, what's going to happen to you in 24 hours. Well, so does Jesus. Jesus knows that in 24 hours from right now, he will be in the grave. His trial will have taken place, his execution will have been taken place, and he will be in the grave under the power of death in 24 hours from right now. And so, knowing that, he has only a little bit of time to prepare his disciples or the last things he needs to teach them or share with them before he leaves them uh, and, and, and goes off to the crucifixion. And uh, the first thing he does, amazingly to us, is he washes their feet. And so would you please stand with me one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let us all listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 13, verse 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing now, you do not understand, but afterward, you will understand. And so Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the depths of it, Lord, that might not be apparent to us at first. We thank you for what it teaches us about you and your character. We also thank you for what it teaches us about our character, even though that can be a painful thing. But we know, Lord, that your wounds are faithful and that you break us down in order to build us up. And so we pray that your spirit would work in us and that we would have minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. Please be seated. So who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's an important question if we really believe what we say to believe about the new heavens and the new earth and the coming kingdom and the eternal world that awaits for us. You think it would be on the forefront of all of our minds and we would be making it a priority to figure out what does the Bible say about who will be first in the kingdom of heaven rather than spending so much time worrying about who will be first in the kingdom of the world. Uh, But I would venture to say that just as the disciples here, we tend to spend most of our time trying to figure out who is greatest in the kingdom of the world. They, uh, what, what John doesn't tell us, but what the other Gospels do, do tell us is that right uh, before this event, the disciples are fighting among each other. They're infighting about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, or John does, two of the disciples come and they ask Jesus, will you right now tell us right now that we will sit at your right hand and your left. In other words, that we'll be your right hand man and your left hand man. We will be the minister of, the sec- we'll be the, the vice president and the secretary of state. Let us know, because they all believe that they're going to Jerusalem and Jesus as the messianic king is going to kick out the Romans and establish uh, Israel as the power on earth, even though Jesus has been consistently teaching them that he is going to Jerusalem to die, to be handed over, to die, and to be resurrected after three days. But they are so concerned about who will be the greatest on earth that they're fighting, and they're fighting with one another. And so John, in his wisdom and in the beautiful way that John tells the gospel story, he tells us this story that Jesus doesn't just answer them, but he does something that shows them something about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you know. Jesus says in the other gospels, he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so we see that the world has one standard and the kingdom of heaven has another. Andrew Murray, a great author, Andrew Murray, in his book called Humility says this. He says that humility will be the one standard of glory in heaven, and that the lowliest creature is the one nearest to God. And if nearness to God equals joy, and it does, we should learn what that means. And so the big idea of this passage, the thesis statement, the one idea that John wants us to know, that Jesus wants us to know more than anything else is this, is that the humility of Jesus is the path of sanctification and joy 
demonstrated for us through the cross. That the humility of Jesus is the path of sanctification and joy demonstrated for us through the cross. Let's break that down one part at a time. The humility of Jesus. Look at verse 3. And so Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We can all get a, we all get a sense of what's happening there, right? This is, uh, and, and you've all been exposed to Christian teaching enough to know that this is a demeaning act, that in the Roman world, not even a Jewish slave could be forced to wash the feet of people who had come in from dinner. It was a, it was a, the streets of Jerusalem were less than clean, let's put it that way. There were open sewers, it wasn't like today. And, uh, you know, as the Sally Jones puts, <laughs> Sally, Jones, Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible that there was dirty dirt on their feet. It was a nasty job. This is, uh, this is the unclogging of toilets or cleaning up vomit in a public restroom. It would make someone instantly unclean because the dust could contain anything from the Gentile world upon it. And so the event we see, the picture is really of, it's, 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 Jesus gets up, he disrobes, he doesn't just take off his outer robe, he literally takes his garments, plural, off, and he dresses himself in a towel as a loincloth. He puts on the garb of the lowliest servant, and he begins to wash their feet. And if you read closely the story, it says, and then when he gets to Peter, so I'm, I think it's safe to assume that there was a long period of awkward, embarrassed, dead silence as the Lord walked around and did this unspeakable act to the disciples in their minds. And then finally he gets to Peter. Maybe he gets to him last. We don't know. And then Peter, as we can always count on Peter to do, speaks his mind. He speaks what everybody is thinking. He says, you will never wash my feet. Why does, he say it? Why does he say that? Because he's thinking to himself, this is totally out of, out of character. This is not what leaders do. This is not what God's Messiah should be doing. This is not how God is. And so he gives away his own false humility. <laughs> he gives away his own ideals about what God is like. But he's wrong. He's dead wrong, right? Because this is exactly what Jesus is like. This is exactly what God is like. The really, the mind-bending thing about this passage is not that Jesus just does this act. It's not like he's saying to the, depo- to, to the disciples, look, I'm going to do this nasty thing for you because once in a while in your ministry you're going to have to do some nasty things and I want you to be ready for this. It's so much more than that. He is doing this because this is what the heart of God is like. 
And this is what the heart that is close to God is like. Washing feet when it, when it, when it is for the glory of God or for the expression of God's goodness in the world is the most natural thing in the world. And that's how Jesus was. The heart of God towards his creation is, in his purest form, is service, is, is, is love, is mercy. The triune God, being perfect in and of himself, does not need and did not need to create, to add anything to himself. He did it solely out of a desire to share his being, his love, and his presence with his creation. It is his act to give service, to send love, to send mercy, and to be God for us as a blessing. You know, ultimately, it's not... We get wrapped up in this thinking God is demanding obedience because he's so high and lifted up. But God is demanding obedience because that is the way of life and peace. And so the heart of God is his sharing his eternal life and joy with his creation. He is working for our good. And Jesus, whose entire being, as we've seen in the gospel, is set on the glory of God and doing the will of God and doing what is going to manifest God's goodness into the world, he is so set on seeing God's goodness flow out to his creation that when he's presented with some menial task or some demeaning task, he doesn't even see it as such because he is so empty of self that all he sees is how this glorifies God, how this advances God's kingdom, how it brings goodness into the world, and it is a joy. He's not even tripping on being menial. It's not even in his mind. But that's... That's what he's like. And that's the mind-bending thing about this, obviously because it's so contrary to how we are. We see a menial thing or a demeaning task, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good day when we would joyfully do a demeaning thing or we would joyfully be, uh, put ourselves under duress or we would joyfully allow ourselves to be uh, put in a situation where we might be harmed or persecuted knowing it's for the glory of God, just based on the fact that this is the glory of God and not think a single thought about it. We're always coming from the position of Peter. Because Peter is just, this is, a, this is not how leaders are. This is not how God is. This is not how things are. He is thinking about himself in terms of height. This is, this is beneath us. And so I, I think in my meditation on this this week, this is what hit hardest. is that I'll be willing to do a demeaning thing, but I'll do it as something that is below me because it needs to be done. Jesus, the heart that's truly close to God, does the demeaning thing without even a thought of it being demeaning because it is something that glorifies God, something that brings God's goodness into the world. And so, therefore, it's washing feet, cleaning toilets, doing the dishes after mission group, sacrificing precious time and money to serve and to help the poor, entering into the world of the homeless and being physically close with them. 
sitting with them, hugging them, holding their hand, being with them. Volunteering for setup and cleanup ministry at the church. When we see these things as channeling God's goodness into the world, it's not even about being menial or degrading. It becomes about, it becomes, these things become in themselves good and beautiful things because they glorify God. And what it shows us is that that when we do these things, when these things become to us the glory of God, it it becomes as evidence. This is in Jesus' life. This is evidence of that the lowliest creature is the nearest to God. And the nearness to God, if that equals joy, it's worth asking ourselves, what does this tell us? And that tells us is that the path to sanctification and joy is this type of humility. So point one, the humility of Jesus. Point two, the humility of Jesus is the path of sanctification and joy. Look at verses thir- look at uh, 13 verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Some traditions have, uh, or some, some churches, some church traditions have traditions of washing each other's feet as like an outward display of obedience to this command of Jesus to do likewise. And, and um, that could be a beautiful thing, but I think Jesus is talking about something even deeper here. He's talking about having the same heart of service that he has towards one another is what he's commanding us to do. It's a much harder thing to do uh, than just wash one another's feet because it requires consistency and it requires uh, the painful emptying of ourselves so that God might fill us up. In A- Andrew Murray, I've been reading this book by Andrew Murray, uh, pastor and theologian, South African pastor and theologian from uh, the uh, turn of the century. Great book he wrote called Humility. Uh, and um, in it, he talks about he gives, this, he gives this illustration of, of, of all of a, of a store and all the treasures of heaven are laid out in the storefront, uh, in the storefront behind the window and all these the treasures of heaven are laid out for us to see and as we reach out to grab them, we're stopped by the plate glass window, the thick plate glass window that stands in our way and he says that the plate glass window is human pride. It's our pride that holds us back, even though we can clearly see the beauty of Jesus. Even we can all, under, we can all agree that that is a beautiful character. Even though we can all agree, I want that for me, for you, 
when we reach out to grab it, something stops us, even though it's right there. And he says that, that plate glass is human pride that stands in our way. And yet Jesus says in this passage that if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's the same word from Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. This is happiness in God's kingdom. And so the question, is there any way through the plate glass for us as we wait Jesus to come and rescue us? And thankfully, the good news is, yes. <laughs> yes, there is. And, and that is really what growing in Christ is all about. The good news is that, yes, there is a way to diminish the plate glass window. The bad news is uh, that in the short term, it's painful. Growing in Christ means just that. It means burning off our selfish pride and emptying ourselves of that awful pride so that God can come in and fill us up. And so traditionally, you know, in Christianity, we call this sanctification. Big theological word, which means uh, the continuing work of God in, 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 in bringing holiness to us. God has justified us completely, by the work of Jesus, but God, just doesn't, God doesn't just leave us in our sins. He continues to work his grace in us by the power of his spirit, by bringing us out of our selfishness and our pride and bringing us into holiness. Um, not, and here's the thing, it, this is not, the process is not to make ourselves more presentable to God. We are already presentable to God because of Jesus. It is God's blessing to us. The process of sanctification or growing in Christ is God's blessing to us, removing the plate glass window so that we can have access to the treasure of heaven and the beauty of the character of Christ here and now, even in this age. But it hurts. <laughs> There's two aspects to it. The first we've call, we call mortification, which is the emptying part, emptying ourselves of our pride, uh, emptying ourselves of our selfishness and this is, let me give you an example how that works. Imagine that you've been confronted with some crisis situation or some opportunity for gain or somewhere in between. What do we usually do? I think we usually, we think, we think what's my desired end out of this? What do I want to get out of this? What do I need to be okay? And then we operate, we, just, we exercise all of our power to make that desired end happen. And then what happens usually or often? Big mess especially in crisis situations. We think we have to have this to be okay. We think we must have that to be okay. And maybe oftentimes God is using these crises to burn our selfishness out of us. And so we say we have to have that. We fight for it. We manipulate things. We maybe tell a couple of white lies. We do what we got to do to get what we got to get. And then we get there and it's a big mess. On the other hand, mortification or getting empty looks at the crisis situation, looks at the opportunity and instead of focusing on self and what I need to get we focus on God what is going to glorify God in this situation what is going to bring his goodness through me to the creation and then we exercise our power in the same way but we exercise now an integrity to work towards that end and we leave the result to God. 
In integrity, I mean, when you come across, when you, when you, when you get to the point where, uh, in your view, telling the white lie is going to get you there a little quicker. Integrity means we don't do that. We stay and we, in, in our integrity and we allow God to work out his good and perfect ends, even though we might not know what that's going to be. I mean, oftentimes, we won't. Even times, we might be headed towards it and we're convinced that it's wrong and bad and it's going to hurt us, but it won't. It won't. In the long run, God's perfect will is always, always, always better. You know, it sounds easy just to say that, but it gets, where it gets super hard is when we're on the verge of losing something super important to us. That's where the hard part of the emptying comes out. That's, what, that's the hard part. Of tr- it's the hard work of faith, the hard work of trusting God. God, in your perfect wisdom and knowledge, I'm going to trust that you know more about this than I do, and I'm going to let this thing go. Maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. Like Joel prayed earlier, we are just as liable to make idols out of great things and good things as we are evil things. So, ultimately, trusting God and his wisdom and power is always better for the long term, although it it can hurt up front. The second part of sanctification is what theologians call vivification. This is, the, this is the good part. This is the filling, God filling us up with his life. Having been emptied, or as the emptier we get of our own pride and selfishness, the more the Spirit is able to fill us with the joy of God, with the eternal life of God, with God's power, even in this age. This is what, this is what Andrew Murray says about this. I'm just going to quote him because it's such a great quote. He says, brethren, here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower still, is Andrew Murray saying, get low. This is what Jesus continually said to the disciples who were thinking of being great in the kingdom. Do not seek or ask for a position of honor. That is God's work. Your work is to submit and humble yourselves and take no place before God or man but that of a servant. That is your work. And let that be your one purpose and prayer because God is faithful and just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds the creature humble and empty, his glory and power flow in to raise up and bless. Don't miss that. Trust it. Be willing to wait for it. It is so much more beautiful than what we sell ourselves short for. Can you imagine a church like that? Can you imagine a church like that that wasn't dead set on using the power of the world for our own good, but instead was just humbling ourselves, constantly seeking God's will and God's goodness for the earth and constantly seeking how we might Submit ourselves, be humble, serve, give. You know, I was thinking about this. I think, you know, what we do, this idea, this is so antithetical to the air that we breathe as a culture, isn't it? 
The air we breathe is you got to get yours. You got to come up. And we hear this and we're like, I can't do that. I can't, what happens? What will happen to me? Who is going to take care of me if I do this? And the answer that Jesus gives us is God will take care of you. And I don't know about you, but honestly, I would rather have God taking care of me than me. <laughs> Amen? Amen. <laughs> Given my history, amen. And God has taken care of me. And he's saying this is more than just a, a, a passive exaltation. I think we... we for the mo- I've been thinking about this this week, and I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do really? And what I do really is I try not to raise up high, and I try not to raise myself up or exalt myself, or, or I try not to, to be lifted up in, in any way that's going to catch people's attention. <laughs> I just kind of let it slowly, I let the circumstances slowly drift into my life and kind of slowly take advantage of things a little bit at a time, and kind of slowly raise up and raise up and just kind of, you know, we all look around and be like, nobody's noticing, right? Nobody's noticing this. But I kind of let it have a passive, I let a passive exaltation happen to me. And some of that, much of that, maybe God's blessing. I'm not discounting that God's not blessing us with comfort. But what I, what I have trouble doing is what I think this is saying. This is calling us to exercise an active lowliness. This is not, this is calling us to exercise as our primary focus in life to seek to be lower. To actively pursue servanthood. To actively pursue divesting ourselves of rights, divesting ourselves of money, of time, of comfort, of convenience, for the benefit of God's kingdom coming into the world. And when we do that, we may lose many things. Time, money, comfort. But we gain things too. We see people come to life. We see people come off the street. We see people come out of being addicted to drugs and alcohol. We see people released from sexual addiction we see people stop living this insanity of glorifying self and instead glorify the living God and we see power flow into them as they become ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. That is bigger than anything, any other team you can play for. Amen? So point one, the humility of Jesus. Point two is the path of sanctification in life. And point three, this is demonstrated for us through the cross. John, as usual, uh, is, has layers of depth in this story. We've seen this throughout the gospel of John. There's the, there's, there's the, 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 the surface story that he's telling, but he's also telling layers of beauty and theological meaning underneath that. Uh, and there's no, there's, no, there's no difference here. He's doing the exact same thing. A few chapters ago, we saw Mary anointing Jesus 
in burial is a symbolic act. Mary is the only one in the room who realizes what's happening. And in her devotion to Christ, she gives a $10,000 to $25,000 bottle of oil, cracks it, anoints his head as an act of, of devotion and of worship and a symbolic act of anointing his body for burial even before it happens. And we see a similar thing happening right here. Look at some general observations is that the story begins with the, with the chapter, with verse 1, where it says that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In the Greek, there's a double meaning on that. It means he loved them perfectly, but it also means he loved them to the very end. We might say he loved them to the death. He emptied himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. He says in uh, also, um, to the apostles that what I do now you do not understand but after you will in John that almost always means after the resurrection of Jesus you'll understand what's happening and that somehow what Jesus is doing here is not just washing their feet but it's cleansing them from all sin it is making them clean and it is giving them their heritage with Jesus verse 8 and verse 10 what could he be talking about that would do all of that, certainly not just a washing of a foot. When we look at the language that John uses, he uses some peculiar vocabulary also in verse 4, where he says, Jesus lays aside his garments. That's the same word John always uses for Jesus laying down his life. And in verse 12, where Jesus takes up his garments, lambain, that's the same word, John always uses for Jesus taking up his life again. Jesus himself said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Same words. John's doing that on purpose. He's cueing our minds. And then verse 10, somehow the word for washing changes. He changes from the Greek word for wash to the Greek word for bathe, implying that there's some sort of complete washing or cleansing going on here now. It's not just the feet, it's all of them are being cleansed, washed, bathed. And finally, notice that this is happening, the tagline says, during the supper. This isn't when they come in for the supper, This is right in the middle of the supper. You know, John doesn't give us, we've talked about this in verse, we were in chapter six. We were talking about the discourse of the living bread, that that is tied in, John is tying that in with the Lord's Supper, with communion, with the Eucharist. And here in the middle of the supper, John gives no account of what happens in self. There's no And Jesus took the bread and he broke it. There's no historical record. But instead, as John always does, he's not interested in telling us what happened historically here. He knows the other gospels have already done that. What he wants to tell us is what is the meaning underneath all of that. That God has come to us in Jesus to serve us through his death and his resurrection. That's the big meaning. That is the big, big meaning. That Jesus freely and willingly, he lays down his life for us. That he has the power to take it up again in his resurrection 
assuring us of our eternal life. We enter into that life and we're cleansed through the water baptism and the washing. And then he also lets us know that we remember him and we participate in the reality of what Jesus has done for us through the cross and the Lord's Supper. This is about so much more than a washing of feet. Although this is telling us that we should empty ourselves and serve one another in love, it is telling us that we can do that. Our model for that is what Jesus has done for us. This is a symbolic act. Jesus has demonstrated his true humility and his true servant's hearts for us through the cross. And the disciples don't get it. They don't know what he's doing right there, but in about three days, they will. But we know now. We know now through the power of his word. And so what does this tell us? This tells us first that the cross means for us security. If God is willing to do this for us, if the humility of God is willing, talk about a menial and demeaning act. Washing someone's feet is a demeaning act. Being hung naked on a cross in a busy cross section of a busy city and spit upon is a far more demeaning act, but that is what the God of heaven and earth has done to win us to himself. And if that is true, we means we have security in him. We can stop worrying about who is the greatest in the kingdom of the world, and we can start with whole hearts, full of joy, worrying about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it means that we can be joyful in doing that. You know, the Bible says that Jesus, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, but he did it for the joy set before him. That that humility, that closeness, that nearness to God produces joy. As we empty ourselves, as the Spirit fills us up, we will receive the joy of the Lord even here and even now. It's just hard to do to block out all the clamoring voices of the world telling us everything but and to slow down enough to let that sink in and to begin to practice this and trust God and see it little by little take shape in our lives. But it, it's true and it's beautiful. And so in concluding, I'm going to challenge everybody with this. I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to pray that God wrecks us this week. Each and every one of you. I'm going to pray that God puts each and every one of us, me included, in some situation where you are going to have to wreck yourself to serve somebody. I'm going to pray that he helps us to know what's happening as it's happening, and I'm going to pray that he gives all of us an extra, extra sense of joy that comes from nearness to him as we participate in that so that we will be able to taste it and see that the Lord is good and want more. Amen? Okay, so I want you to pray this with me. We're going to all pray. I'm praying. I want you all, we're going to pray together. We're going to pray that God wrecks us this week. Okay, here we go. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing it is to us. We thank you, Lord, that it is scary. Um, but we thank you that we know that you are good and we know that we can trust you because you have come to earth and died for us to bring us to you. 
The question of whether you're good or trustworthy is off the table. We know. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would work against our pride and our, our, our selfish hearts that want comfort and that want uh, acclaim and everything else in the world. We, we want you to demolish our hearts that want to be first in the kingdom of the world. And we pray desperately that you will give us hearts that want nothing more than to see you glorified and to see your kingdom come into the world and to know your will and to do it even as the angels do in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and for everyone in this room that you would wreck us this week. Give us some opportunity where we will have to have an opportunity to serve someone in a way that makes us so uncomfortable, our skin crawls. And I pray that your spirit would fill us and power us through that. On the other side, we would see the joy and beauty that it is so that we would have a vision of the beauty of Jesus so that we would be able to pursue that. For the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.